conflicted by grace. One of the things, one, one of the things that inspired this is our younger generations coming along and they're conflicted by it. We just sang a song a few moments ago that, that if Jesus set us free, we are free indeed. You know, we are living by the grace of God, but what does that really mean? Does that mean I can do anything I want to do? Or uh, grace means forgiving. And so if I forgive someone, is God going to really have my back and he's going to take care of this? What about, you know, if grace is God's undeserved favor, then all, everything I have comes from grace, the grace of God. James 1.17 puts it this way, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. So everything we have comes from God. Is it going to be enough? Is it going to be sufficient for us as we go through life? Some of you university students, you're about ready to graduate the next year or two, and maybe you're thinking, is that, is that grace, can I really trust Christ? Because is his grace going to be enough to give me the kind of job that I need or I want. Some of you that are going to, uh, to high school, the same thing. You're going into a, a new thing. You're going into the ninth grade. Others here are taking on different jobs. You're looking at maybe even retirement. Is the, am I going to have enough money? Is God's grace going to be really sufficient for me? And it really comes down to one thing, and that is really can I trust Christ in all this? Does he, you know, I, I know about how he's supposed to be the son of God and all that, but really can I trust him? We come to Christ by, in our salvation by the grace of God. The Bible says it's not of works, lest any person should boast, could brag about it. <clears throat> so I, come, I came when I was 16 years old. I came to Christ. I came to know Christ on one thing. I came to the cross humbly saying, God, I'm getting out of the saving business. I have no way to save myself, and so I'm relying on your grace to get me to heaven. I, I come to you, I invite you into my heart. And so afterwards, I, I was thinking to myself, well, now I, I need to sort of trust Christ with my life, but that's indeed just maybe as hard as getting saved sometimes and surrendering yourself because it's a constant thing of relying on the grace of God. So can we do that? That's the question. And here's, here's my statement today. The more you know Christ, the more you can trust him and his grace. So how do we know him? Well, we're going to be looking at the king of grace, the source of grace, as we look at this story of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Now, if you're here for the first time, you came in a perfect Sunday. I'll tell you why. We've been going through the book of Matthew um, for a long time, all year, all right? But at this point, the first 20 chapters were about the first three and, a, the, uh, the three and a half years of his ministry. He lived to be 30. He started his ministry. And mainly the book of Matthew from about chapter three on is about those three and a half years of ministry. Now we're turning the corner. And the corner is going to be toward Jerusalem. And he's going toward Jerusalem. It's the last seven days of his life. And it takes up eight chapters of the book. Only 28 chapters in the whole book. And eight of them are about the last week, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how important must that be? As we look at this passage, we're going to see how he was, he was proclaimed the king of the Jews. And therefore, the challenge is now, is he going to be the king of our heart? We look at this passage. In fact, I want to divide it up in a couple of different ways. Three, three basic points. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He said, well, that doesn't really maybe apply to you because maybe you don't have a Jewish background, but it does apply to you. It's very, very important that we make that point. 
Because then the second point is that Jesus can be the, is the king of the world, and that really talks about the scope of his grace. The first one talks about the truth. We'll get to the truth of his grace, the source of his grace, and finally, the application of the grace. And we'll ask the question, is he king of your heart? Well, first of all, Jesus is the king of the Jews. I want you to start looking with me at chapter 21 and verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent two disciples. Let me tell you about this place. Uh, some of the Gospels really, in fact, every, I think every Gospel talks about this story. It's a big deal. And he's writing into Jerusalem the whole thing that he's setting up. He's coming to a little small town outside of Jerusalem. And right beside that town is a little town called Bethany. Now, Bethany is very important because in John chapter 11, it's where Jesus went to Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead. So you can imagine, here's a guy that's been in the grave for days, and now he's come forth. And everybody knows that Jesus Christ, or this Jesus of Nazareth, has raised someone from the dead. It's where uh, Mary anointed the feet of Jesus for burial, and Martha was serving. So all these things were going on. But then I want you to notice in the passage right here, and when it talks about what immediately happened, it says in chapter 20, verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, rebuked the blind men, cut you up here a little bit, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus never rebuked them for this. First time ever. First time in this gospel. Why? Up to this point, what he would do is come along and heal somebody. He said, no, don't tell anybody. Man, if you were... You know, you were out healing people. You'd be, you know, everybody would be running around telling everybody about it. But he said, don't tell anybody. And he cast out a demon over here. Don't tell anybody. And do this, don't tell anybody. Now, all of a sudden, this man's proclaiming Jesus Christ is the son of David, which means king of the Jews. David was the king of the Jewish empire back in the Old Testament. He is referred to as the king of uh, the, the king uh, or the son of David all throughout the scripture, all the way through the book of Revelation. This is, this is crucial. This is important. And so as he's doing this, we find that this is the first time he says, okay, you can call me the son of David. It's okay. And then he makes his way in Jerusalem, and boy, this story is going to be eye-opening. Why the turn of events? Well, before when Jesus was healing everybody, he was telling them, don't tell anyone because it's going to put pressure on my enemies to kill me. And now he knows he's seven days away from death. And on this time, he's saying, look, I'm coming into Jerusalem, and we're going to find out next week just what authority he had, but I'm coming into Jerusalem, and it's time you either crown me as king or kill me. One of the two. Crown me or kill me. It's confrontation time. So he allows people now to call him the son of David as we turn the corner to everything that's going on here in the gospel of this triumphal entry. Notice in verse 2, it says, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with, a, uh, with her, untie and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, some people say, well, what he did was he went in Jerusalem at some point, and he he put all this stuff together. He orchestrated, and he did orchestrate in some ways, this entire prophecy that's about to be fulfilled because he's God, obviously, who orchestrated it. But keep in mind that there's no evidence that he ever went into Jerusalem first to, to line up anything. In fact, listen to what John says about a couple of the disciples. It says, Nathaniel said to him, 
How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, he was nowhere near Philip and Nathaniel. He was not like he could look about as far as me for, to this vomitory and the exit sign. And say, oh, yeah, I see what's going on. No, he was nowhere in sight. And we can find here God's omniscience. That is, he knows everything, past, present, and future. And as we're looking at this, these verses, we find out that, that God, Jesus Christ, was orchestrating this thing because prophecy was about to be fulfilled. Now, notice what it says in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foil of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on, their, put, put on a cloak, and he sat on them. Now, as we open this up, we find out that Jesus gave them a directive, and he, he was very detailed in it because this was a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. There were 10 different times that the book of Matthew says that prophecy was fulfilled. Now, let me tie this in. Listen to me real quick, carefully. Let me tie this in. Remember, the book of Matthew, this gospel, was designed to reach the Jewish audience. It was to let them know that they needed a Savior. They couldn't trust being Jewish. They couldn't trust the Old Testament uh, promise of being God's people. They couldn't trust being born from Abraham. They had to be born of Jesus Christ. God was calling something new together. It's called a church. That's the reason why there's a lot of things that we call sins and our sins that are not mentioned really by Jesus because that's what he was about was to get the Jewish people in a situation where they knew they were going to need a Savior, and then he was performing miracles and preaching the gospel and all that to prove that he was the one. And so one of the things will fulfill prophecy. The Jewish people would look at the Old Testament and say, okay, well, here's a guy coming along, and he's claiming to be uh, something special from God. Well, is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Let me open up the Old Testament and find out the prophecies that are fulfilled in his life. And so we look at this, and the disciples go in, and they come back. What, what was going on here? Look in verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put it on the cloaks. Then verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds, and they went before him, and they followed him, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. Now, we love this word, Hosanna. We sing about it. It's in a lot of songs. What does it mean? It means, Lord, save us. Now, you can get the picture. He's riding in on a donkey. And they had to think, wow, that is really strange. 150 years before, 164 B.C., a fellow by the name of Simon Maccabees was a conqueror. It's during the intertestamental period. There's about 400 years between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, when Jesus came. And that was called the Maccabean period. And there was a victor, a great uh, king, you might say, who was the leader of the people, that marched in on a stallion with a lot of people and a lot of pomp and circumstance. That's the way to do it. When the Romans won a battle, man, they rode in on big, big, beautiful horses, and it was a great celebration. And here's Jesus riding in on a donkey, and even at that, a small colt. What was going on? They were saying, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. What were they talking about? They were praying, oh, God, save us from Rome. In the Old Testament, 
we find there's two different instances where Jesus is coming on the scene. Once as a suffering servant, and the other one is a coming king. We're going to be talking about that in the next series of messages in Matthew. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. We'll talk about the coming conqueror, the coming king. In this role, he was coming as a suffering servant and the humility of him riding in on a donkey could not go unnoticed. The palm trees that they were, the palm branches, and, and people came from both directions. Now, uh, you know, just a few days later, they were going to be yelling for his head and for him to be crucified. But at this point, we find the Gentile and the Jewish crowd mixed up. They were coming into Jerusalem. The Jer Jerusalem crowd, the Jewish people from the Jerusalem crowd, heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead and all the miracles. I couldn't wait to meet Jesus. They came out. They were all expecting one thing, a coming conqueror. But he came rather to suffer for our sins on the cross. He came to do something far greater than to set them free politically or militarily, but to set them free on the inside. One of the things that we often get confused about, and it, and it conflicts a little bit with the, with the whole idea of understanding grace, and that is, you've heard it said before, all sins are the same. Well, that's not true, by the way. Uh, all, tr all sins uh, have different consequences. But what that means is, is that every time one, we sin one time against God, it's enough to separate us from God. So spiritually speaking, they're all the same. And you say, well, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I, uh, I do well. I, I'm, a, I'm a good student. I'm a good father. I'm a good mother. I'm a, I'm a good kid. You know, I, I don't give my parents any problems. I'm comparing myself now to everybody else. It's, you know, I'm, I'm looking pretty good. I'm looking pretty, pretty well. The problem is the essence of sin, the heart of sin is to become the king of your own life. It's been said that basically sin is the servant putting himself up as a king, while salvation or grace is a king putting himself in a place of a servant. The problem with our life is not the sins that we do. That's just that, that's part of it, but certainly, but it's the symptom of a greater problem on the inside. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they, Satan tempted them and said, you can be the God of your own life. You can be just like God. Well, that's what they wanted. Call the shots of their own life, be the ruler on their own life, and they lost everything. They lost their kingdom. They lost their home. They lost their sense of purpose. And we're still seeking after those, those things today. So what happens? We don't, we don't go by a book. We don't have, you know, I mean, who, who's to say that you're a good person and somebody else is not a good person? And so what, what do we do? And instead of going by this and understanding the grace of God through this and comparing ourselves to Christ, we compare ourselves to others. I can remember in, being in my small group classes, uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, back in church. I'd look down the row and I'd say, well, you know, I'm just as good as half the kids in this class. I'm just as good. So what happens? We set our own standards, all right? And if we meet those standards, we feel pretty good. I felt pretty good about my, myself in that class. It's very, it, was a, it was astonishing to me that I found out that I needed Jesus. I thought I could do it all by myself. I mean, there it was. I, I mean, these people claimed to be Christians, and I was, I was just as good as half of them. And so pride comes about. Envy comes about. And, and really ungraciousness. I mean, if I'm not tasting of the grace of God myself, then I'm not going to be gracious to anybody else. On the other hand, if I don't meet my standard, I feel defeated. 
I feel depressed. In fact, I might make up some stuff and say, well, I'm really meeting my standard. It's somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's fault that I'm not doing that. And I become ungracious again because after all, if it's my standard I'm not meeting, I must not be meeting God's standard and God's standard's too high. He's ungracious. And so since I don't feel the grace of God, I'm not giving it to anybody else either. And so we look at this passage and understand what Jesus is saying. Look, I'm coming in and I'm humbling myself on this donkey, but he's fulfilling prophecy. Why is that important to us? In verse five, he's quoting Zechariah 9, 9. Because in order for us to trust Christ and his grace, we've, we've got to have something to go by. And why is it that I would stand up here and tell you that the Bible is the word of God? There are many reasons, and I, I don't have time to preach on them all this morning. But I would say this in the context of this passage, that this is the only piece of literature in antiquity that has fulfilled predictive prophecy. Right here, Zechariah 9.9, writing on, in a cult. The Bible tells us that he would be born of a virgin. The Bible tells us that he would be called out of Egypt. The root of Jesse, the son of, of David, he would be in the lineage of David. The Bible tells us that he would uh, go to a cross, a Roman, he would die on a Roman cross. He would be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. All throughout the scripture we find over and over and over and over and over again, we find fulfilled prophecy. No other book like that. You say, well, what happened is they just sort of orchestrated it. You know, they wrote it about in the Old Testament. They thought, well, let's just write about it. It's fulfilled in the New Testament. Here's the problem with that. There's a lot of prophecies in the Old and the New Testament that's about the second coming, concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. And again, we'll talk about that in just a few weeks, like earthquakes. In the last days, there are going to be multiplication of earthquakes, more earthquakes in the last hundred years than recorded in the previous 2,000 years. The misuse of drugs, Revelation 9. You can find crime and on the rise everywhere. You can find conflict on the rise everywhere. Wars and rumors of wars. Peace at the same time being preached about everywhere you go. I mean, just a multitude of signs all fulfilled right now as we're living. Either they have been fulfilled or they're being fulfilled, many of them. Predictive prophecy. That is, was not only something that the Jewish listeners were grappling with, but something that we can grapple with as well, but I need to move on. Jesus is not only the king of the Jews and shows his omniscience of knowing everything, but he's also the king of the world. Look at the scope of it all. Verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Isn't that the question of the age? Who is this? That determines everything else. And Matthew wants us to, to know, to notice that they didn't get it. And the crowds, Jesus didn't say this. Disciples didn't say this. They already knew who he was. But the crowd said, oh, he's just a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, they thought they were saying something good about him. And people today are saying, oh, he's a great prophet. He's a great teacher. Jesus is this. Jesus is that. But in reality, what they're saying is, look, I don't want to put down Jesus, but I don't believe he's the son of God. I don't want to put him down. I think he's a good person. The problem is Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and he was saying to them, either crown me as king or kill me. And he says to all of us, all down through the history, 
either crown me as king of your life or just kill me out of your life. The whole idea of him being just a prophet or a good teacher is not open to us. He, he would not leave that open to us because if he was a prophet and he claimed to be God in the flesh, the son of God, he'd be a liar. How could he be a, a good prophet, nothing more than a false prophet, if he was lying to us? And so he came purposely the whole time to say, look, you've got to decide who I am. I'm either the king or I'm an imposter. And there's nothing I'm leaving open in between. So who is Jesus? Well, the problem in trusting in his grace and heart is that we don't know him. And that's why the mission of our church is building lives that matter by teaching people to love, know, trust, and follow Jesus. Preschool, we concentrate on the love. Elementary school, we want them to know Jesus before they get out of elementary school. Trusting Jesus in high school and middle school because it's so so uh, important as they come with different views in their life. And finally, the result is as an adult to follow Jesus. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, you're going to come to worship. You're going to come and sing. You're going to come and hear the praise of God and the truth and the theology that's in the songs. You're going to hear the word of God preached, but you also need small groups. The Bible says iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Just like the testimony we heard just a few moments ago. And the fellowship and the love that they feel, all of our caring goes through the small groups. But also, it just simply, you need to see all this in action. You can be on a deserted island and read the Bible and grow, but you're not going to know it in its context. You're not going to know how to interpret it. And we want to train people that when you go out in the world, you'll be able to resist temptation. You'll be able to deal with life's problems. You'll be able to rebound from failure. You'll be able to take the onslaught or maybe persecution in your life. That's what church is all about. But we find here that he's the king of the entire world. He's omniscient. There's a verse, set of verses in Hebrews that modify this some. And it talks about long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke through the prophets, but in the last days. And the last days began when Jesus Christ came. In the last days, he's spoken through his son. Who is this Jesus? Well, he created the world. Isn't that great? What power that he has, that he planned and created every little intricate thing of this world. Now, if that's true, and he has a plan for my life, and it, it stands to reason I can trust him with that plan, that his grace is going to give me a plan and an outlook and a purpose for my life. In fact, he says that he's the heir, before that even, the heir of all things. He owns it. He's inherited all things. And that has to be if I'm able to pray. What, what about somebody says, well, I'm gonna, I, boy, I'm $500. I, I need $500, and I don't know where I'm going to get it. I'm going to pray for it. What right do we have to pray for that if God doesn't own the $500? Stay with me. What we're doing is saying, well, it, Somebody else, a banker owns that somewhere. It's in a bank somewhere, and God has to get it out. Well, somebody owns that money. And so if God lays it on somebody's heart to give you that money, that $500, that means he's kind of really manipulated them and stole it from them. It was their money. But no, the Bible says God owns it all. And so therefore, God can provide any need in our life. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the heir of all things. He created the universe. That, that means he has a great plan for our life as well. The radiance of his glory. Listen, sometimes I just need some wisdom. 
And radiance means a light shining in on something. I need his wisdom. I need light in dark times in my life. I remember when uh, the old preacher J. Vernon McGee would talk about it. He said he raised on a farm and he'd have to go out at five o'clock in the morning and milk the cows. He'd go out in the barn. He could hear. It was dark. He had a lantern and he could just hear the rats everywhere. And he was scared as a little boy. But he said when the sun came up, the rats ran and the birds began to sing. Dear friend, you may be in down times right now. You may be going through dark times. But Jesus is the light of the world. And when his light comes into your life, the dark times, the rats run and the birds begin to sing. There's an exact, he says, I'm the exact imprint of the nature of God. In John 1.1, it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, who is this word? Verse 14 of the same chapter. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the only begotten glory of the Father. Then he says in verse 17 of that same chapter, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is the Father's side, he has made him know. You, you want to know about God? Study the life of Jesus. Who is he? He's the heir of all things. He created all things. He knows all things. He knows all of your past, all of your present, all of your future. He has all power. He upholds, the Bible says, the universe by the word of his power. Oh my goodness, he not only created it, he holds it all together. He has the power then to answer our prayers. He has the power to overcome temptation in our life and to give us the power to do that. He has the power to apply the different gifts and grace that he's given to our life. Then the Bible says he made purification of sins. And of all the things in the Bible, the writers of the Bible were most enamored with this because the greatest gift God has ever given us is forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins that you then would become like he wanted you to become at the very creation. God's design for you to become with him reconcile to him. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Then the Bible says he sat down on the right hand of the Father. What, what is that all about? Well, the Bible says in other places that he's sitting right now. His presence right now is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And the Bible says this. He's there ever to make intercession for us. He's praying for us all the time. All the time. And so how do you come to a place in your life where you can get this, where you can really begin to trust him. Well, as a Christian, I need to read the scriptures. I need to be able to be encouraged every day. Reading in the Psalms, reading in the New Testament, because right here in verse 34 of chapter 20, when the blind men got, were, were healed, they began to follow Jesus. This high, whole idea is he, they're following in the way. Jesus is just moving on. He's on his way. That's what I mean. He, he's on, they followed him on his way. Jesus is on his way in your life. You're going through grief right now? Jesus is on his way. You're going through dark times in your life? Jesus is on his way. You're trying to make a decision in life on what to do with your life and what the next step in, is in your life. Jesus is on the way. You, you've, you, you can't see his hand in your life right now. Jesus 
is on his way and you can trust him. So how do we apply this? Jesus can be the king of our heart. And we see this in verse 34 with the blind men. Now listen, we lost, real quickly, I'm going to close here. We lost three things when we fell away from God. When Adam and Eve fell, they lost three things. And we are in loss of that even today. We lost connection to greatness. We were separated from God, and he's the great one. He's the one with all grace. We lost our connection to greatness, and therefore, we want to count. We want to matter. But how? How do I matter in life? I'm seeking that. We lost our home. Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden. We've lost our home. And so now we're searching for truth. We're searching to belong somewhere. We're searching to be comfortable with what we believe. And then we lost our name, the heir of all things, being called a follower of God. And therefore, we don't know who we are anymore. We just keep trying to find ourselves. What's missing? We're missing the king. Because a king has a kingdom. A kingdom has you know, rules or directions. We're missing that. We're missing a king in our life, and we're no longer part of the kingdom. And we become part of the kingdom by trusting Christ as our Savior and Lord. And here's the essence of salvation right here. If you don't understand anything I said, I've said today, and you're not a believer, not a follower of Christ, please understand this. It's not about the do's and don'ts. That kind of comes later. It's about this. It's about coming to Christ and saying, I'm no longer trying to be king of my own life. The king has become the servant so I can follow the king. I surrender my life to you. I humble myself, and I want to get into your kingdom. I want entry into your kingdom, not my own. I want to become part of your kingdom and you as the king of my heart and not myself, which means not my sin. What about you today? Have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord? Have you ever surrendered that? Have you ever said, I'm not going to be king of my life anymore? Are you one of those who are searching for the greatness? I mean, being honest, you want to count. You need a home. You're searching for that home. You're searching for the truth. You're trying to find yourself. You'll only find yourself in Christ with heads bowed and eyes closed. And I, I want to pray with you right now. And if, um, if you are here today and you're saying, well, you know, I do need to find myself. I, I do want to count. I do want to find my home. And I can only find that in Christ. And you want to pray with me. You want Jesus to come into your heart. No one else walking around, okay? No one else walking around. Right now, in the quietness of this moment, would you pray this prayer with me? Inviting Jesus into your heart. Would you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, thank you for being king. The king of grace. Thank you because of your grace. You came and died on the cross in my place. And I rely on that grace and the cross of what you did for me to save me. I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me of all my sins. 
become king of my heart. And I want to pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.